Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 1 as we consider the question, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, I want to read verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for... Your inerrant, infallible, all authoritative and sufficient word. And as we delve into your word this morning, might the great teacher, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this word, help us by enlightening our minds, illumining our minds and our hearts, preparing us not only to hear, but to receive that which you have spoken and are speaking by your spirit to our hearts through this word today that through the preaching of your word, it might accomplish your perfect will and your good pleasure, not returning to you void, but doing exactly that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. On uh, Sunday, March the 1st, I spent an, our hour together in the scripture on Romans 1.16, just on that one verse and in 1.15, Paul told his readers that he was eager, if you look back and kind of follow with me, he was eager to preach the gospel to them. And then immediately in verse 16, he tells them that he is not ashamed of the gospel. No doubt Paul's eagerness, if you stop for a moment and think about it, to preach the gospel in Rome had two motivations. So Paul's eagerness and motivation to preach the gospel in Rome was motivated by two factors. First, there was the motivation of his calling as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, his eagerness was grounded in the fact that this is what he was called to do. 
He was called by God. We saw that in Romans chapter 1.1. He was called by God to be an apostle set apart for the gospel. So he was committed to that. He never weighed in his devotion. He never weighed in his commitment to preaching the gospel. Everywhere he went at all times, he preached the gospel. If you go back, for example, to Acts chapter 9, which we did a few weeks ago, and we looked at his conversion experience. After his conversion experience, recovering his sight, And then going and spending a few days with the disciples, the apostles of the Lord Jesus. What was the very first thing that Paul went to do? Well, he went and took a vacation to sort out what had happened to him, right? No. Here he is in Damascus. And he's met with the disciples. And they've they've encouraged him. He goes right straight into the synagogue. And he begins to preach the gospel. And they are amazed at what they're hearing coming from him because this was the very one who was on the way to Damascus with papers to arrest them as Christians and have them carried away. And yet here he is in the midst of the synagogue preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and proving to them through the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God. And you would think, well, that's just initial zeal. That's fervor that someone experiences when they are initially saved. That's not what the case was with Paul. That never waned. In fact, if you follow him for the next three decades of his ministry, not only did it not wane, but it it increased in fervor. It increased in obligation and in desire to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere that he possibly went. He didn't walk into the city limits of any place where he did not immediately begin to do what? Preach. And so his eagerness... Here is motivated by that calling that is upon his life. In fact, we read in Corinthians where Paul says, If I don't preach the gospel, woe woe am I, most miserable am I, if I'm not doing that which I am called to do. But there's a second motivation. There is that, that motivation of his calling, but there's an obligation to that calling as well as an obligation to those that he is to preach to. First, he understands I'm obligated to God by virtue of my calling, but my obligation goes beyond that. My obligation goes even to those whom God says I am to preach the gospel to, to the Jew, to the Greek, to all men. There's no one that I am not to preach the gospel to, and I'm obligated to do that. Even when it wasn't convenient, even when it was risky, even when it was dangerous, he was under obligation to do it. And that is an obligation he took serious. So he's motivated by his calling as an apostle and he's motivated by his obligation to God and his obligation to those to whom he will preach. And so Paul knew all too well that the preaching of the gospel in Rome was going to be a very risky thing for him and a very costly thing. You'll recall that Paul is yet to visit Rome. This letter is written from Corinth. And Paul is yet to make his way there. In fact, we don't have any evidence whatsoever that there had been any apostolic influence in Rome up to the time of, the, of Paul's visit. Peter had, had not been there, regardless of what others might want to think. We have no record of, of any apostolic teaching or visitation actually being in Rome. So Paul knew that his visit would indeed be risky. Because the Christians in Rome were already beginning to feel as it were, the undercurrent of persecution because of the gospel. Just a very quick statement or two in regards to that. Early on, and you recall, we believe that the church in Rome more than likely started from uh, pilgrims who had made their way back from Jerusalem at Pentecost 
to Rome, because we're told in Acts chapter 2 that there were pilgrims from Rome in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. So they received the gospel, were saved, went back to Rome, and that's more than likely where the church began. And so as they begin to go back to Rome, those that were Jewish in their upbringing and their influence probably would continue to worship in their small groups or synagogue or wherever it might be that they are worshiping, or they may begin to meet in small pockets. But by the Romans, they were still perceived as being a sect, S-E-C-T, a sect of Judaism. And that was beneficial early on because for the most part, even though there had been a massive expulsion of Jews from Rome, for the most part throughout the Roman Empire, the Jews enjoyed somewhat of religious liberty and freedom. Rome was all about one thing. Do you remember what it was I told you Rome was all about? Rome was all about peace. So once they conquered a people or a civilization, all they desired to do was to maintain the peace, the Pax Romana. That's what they wanted, to bring peace. So as long as you could go through your life and do your worship, whatever it might be, and keep the peace, it was fine with them. Now, but what was beginning to happen was that was beginning to change just a little bit. The Romans were beginning to perceive that these Christians weren't merely another sect of the Jews or a sect of the Jews, but they were, in fact, a distinct people with distinct, very distinct views and perspectives on things, especially in the way they conducted their worship and the fact that they worshiped one man as God. And so they were already beginning to feel the undercurrent of persecution because of the gospel. Early on, they were mocked and scorned for their faith in Jesus Christ, but were not yet, at the time of Paul's writings, were not yet in the throes of full-scale persecution, which would bring about complete vilification and in countless cases, death and martyrdom. We know that from history, that history is littered much uh, a few years later after this period, is littered with Christian martyrs. We, uh, in fact, you may not know this. I did not know this until um, I got the collector's edition of it. One of my uh, favorite movies, and I don't have a lot of favorite movies, is The Gladiator. And uh, they, I got a collection kit someone gave me, and it had some of the scenes that were cut from the original movie that did not make it into the movie. And then it gave you an explanation of why those particular clips did not make it into the movie, which in a sense, I wish that they would had made it in there. But during the, uh, the making of the movie, they actually cut several scenes where they had Christians being used in the Colosseum to entertain the masses. And they showed Christians being attacked by wild beasts white, as they were uh, draped in white garments or animal skins put into the center of the arena and the wild animals released. And the reason they took it out of the original cut was they were afraid that it would be offensive. Well, it was accurate because that is exactly, you know, decades after even the writing of this letter, that is exactly what began to happen. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. In fact, if our dating of Paul's letter to the church at Rome is correct. And there's all evidence internally and externally that it is that supports it, which is around A.D. 56. We know that Paul was in Corinth at this time. And we know what was going on there. We have record of that. And then we have this record, having a record of this letter having gotten to Rome. So it was probably written around A.D. 56. 
written while he was in, in Corinth. Here's what we know about what was going on in the world. We know that Nero was the reigning emperor in Rome. Does that sound familiar, that name Nero? Well, Nero was the sixth emperor of Rome, reigning from AD 54 to AD 68. We are also aware that it was Nero who led what has traditionally been called by church historians as the first persecution. Now, this was that first persecution that began about this time in the, in the 50s, AD 50s, and, and went on to his reign in 68. Following Nero's first persecution, eight subsequent persecutions would follow, all the way up to the, quote, conversion, end of quote, of Constantine. Up until that time, persecutions of Christians had grown, had continued to increase over the decades as the church began to grow. And so at the time of Paul's letter to Rome, Nero's infamous persecution had yet to be flamed into or fanned into fuel uh, to full flame. Now use that fanned into, that's a lot of F's, isn't it? Fanned into full flame intentionally. I wrote down in my notes with a smiley face, pun intended. And here's, let me briefly explain, explain why I said that. In midsummer of AD 64, Rome burned. Flames ravaged the city, depending on which historian you read. Some say the flames ravaged the city. They, they burned for six days. Some say nine days. At that time in the city of Rome, there were 14 districts. When the flames were finally extinguished and put out of the 14 districts, 10 of them were completely destroyed, non-existent. Only four of the districts were left standing. Now, after the flames subsided and the fires extinguished and those, those four districts were left standing, rumors began to rise. Notice I said rumors began to rise that Nero was responsible for the fire. In fact, the rumors centered on things like, well, Nero was, was just an egomaniac who wanted to build Rome as his own memorial. And in order to be able to do that, he was going to destroy the existing Rome and rebuild a whole new one that would honor him. Well, that pretty much rumors. I mean, there's much debate on whether he did indeed have anything to do with the fire or not. But but anyway, he was being blamed for the fire. A lot of attention was on him. So what he tried to do to squash this uprising against him was he began to lavish upon the Roman citizens all kinds of benefits, claiming holidays, giving them things, just, just dealing out all money, anything he could deal out. And it just simply, simply wasn't working. So then at that time, something begins to happen. Now I'm going somewhere with this. Pay attention, please. Something began to happen. He needed a scapegoat. And so what he did was to get the attention off of himself. He found a minority group in the city who he could look at and say, see those people, they're strange. They're very strange. In fact, you know what? I bet you they did it. Now, do you want to guess who that group was? <laughs> that was the Christians that were in Rome. So they were the minority group, the unpopular group, the Christians. So it was Emperor Nero who first recognized publicly 
that Christianity was a distinct religion, not a Jewish subsect, and began immediately to, immediately to persecute the faith. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, I hope you have that in your library. If you don't, you need to get it. Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you have children or grandchildren and you're looking for something to sit down and read with them, read that book with them. And explain to them. I guess that would be the second book I'd recommend. The first would be Pilgrim's Progress. And the second would be Fox's Book of Martyrs. But according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, as well as other church historians, Christians were literally, listen to some of the things that began to happen to them. Nero was serious about this. He was serious about getting the attention off of himself. So what he did was, for example, he would sew Christians inside wild animal skins. And then would have them torn to pieces by fierce dogs. They would have, he would have them brought into the Colosseum, and subsequent emperors would too, have them brought into the Colosseum, dressed in animals' clothes, and then having animals that they had not fed, uh, predator animals they had not fed for days being starving, they would release them and allow them to attack these Christians, to entertain the people. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff, but then... You hear of things which is also documented traditionally that Nero did. He would actually take garments and dip them in wax till they became stiff and would put them on the Christians and would tie the Christians to poles and would use them to light his garden as he set them on fire. So both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were martyred under Nero's reign as well as many other notable church figures. In fact, if you take Fox's book of martyrs and, and you go through each, it'll give you an, an itemized list of those who died under Nero's uh, reign and actually give you why, how they believe traditionally that they died. I guess they had not quite read My Best Life Now. But the Christian belief in only one God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ seemed very narrow. Does that sound familiar? Sound very narrow and, and or it seemed very narrow and arrogant to the Romans. Most Romans, if they had any spirituality at all, and most Romans did because it was actually considered unpatriotic to not be spiritual in some sense. Most Romans, if they had any spirituality at all, covered all their spiritual bases, so to say, by worshiping and sacrificing to many gods, even to known and unknown gods. Remember Paul's visit to Mars Hill in Athens, to the, and they, where they have a, even had a, 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 a memorial to the unknown god. They want to make sure they had their bases covered, kind of like Elvis Presley. Somebody years ago noticed that Elvis Presley was wearing a, a group of, I guess now you call it bling. It wasn't called bling then, but had about a dozen or so chains around his neck with the Star of David, the cross, the yin-yang, and everything you can imagine was around his neck. And somebody walked up to him and said, Mr. Preston, I see that you are a religious man. He said, yeah, I just want to make sure I got all the bases covered. And so Romans were kind of like that. I hope I didn't destroy your hope and your faith in Elvis Presley. But some of you are, and I didn't know, oh, no, now you go and burn your records or something. No, don't do that, but. But, I mean, that's the way the Romans were. The Romans were just that way. We wanted to make sure. And so here you, had, here you had this. They even worshiped dead emperors. Deified dead, dead emperors. And so here they see this group of Christians who are worshiping 
a man as God, one man as God, not many gods, and giving their full, wholehearted devotion to him, even to the point of celebrating what we commonly know as the Lord's Supper, which they referred to as a cannibalistic feast. They really believed. They, some of the rumors were that these Christians kill young children. They kill their children and eat their flesh and drink their blood in their worship services. That was the, that was the vilification that we suffered in the early church that brought on much of the persecution. If you thought your neighbors were doing that, you might begin to persecute them too, wouldn't you? So why all this information? Well, to help you understand, I did this intentionally, to help you understand the environment Paul was entering into via this letter and later via his visit. Paul would later make it to Rome. He'd be put under house arrest first, released then for a short time where he was very likely he may have traveled to Spain and made some other travels and then brought back to Rome, this time in chains, incarcerated, chained literally to a Roman soldier or guard and ultimately give his life by having his head chopped off. But regardless of all that, regardless of the hostility, regardless of the vilification, regardless of all that Paul might be risking by not only writing, but by visiting Rome, he is emphatic in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says something. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Regardless of what, how it might be vilified, regardless of how it might be considered or thought of or talked about or criticized by others, he was not ashamed of it. He had already suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. And yet in spite of all his suffering and in light of the beginning of persecution in Rome, Paul knew this was coming. And might I interject something here? And it was brought to our attention. It repeatedly began to be voiced at the conference that we just left two weeks in California. And I have two gentlemen here to verify that I'm telling you the truth. It was virtually every single man that stood and preached to us and taught us during that entire seminar. Every one of them independently of each other said, Church, prepare yourself. It is very likely persecution is shortly coming upon us. And if you look at the history of Rome and you look at the, uh, at the fall of Rome and the persecution that Rome brought upon the church and the subsequent persecution that did fall on the church, look at what's going around us today. Look at what's going on around us today. But Paul says, in spite of that persecution, I not only am not ashamed of the gospel, but I am eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel. I want to get to Rome. I want to get to the very place where the seat of the Caesars is. And I want to preach right there in his court, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did not Chris give us a great example of that last week as Paul preached the gospel to Agrippa? What a tremendous example. In verse 16, Paul gives us the first of two characteristics of the gospel in this verse, he tells us, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And now in verse 17, he gives us the second of the two characteristics of the gospel. He says, for in it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. So you see two things. First, you see in the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And secondly, it is the revelation of the righteousness of God. Now, this is crucial. And I, as, I, as I was writing this, I'm thinking, I feel so grossly inadequate in communicating it because of the, the debate that has been raging for centuries in regards to what this really means. It's fairly simple. I mean, simple in the sense of being shallow, but simple in the sense of us understanding it if we really look at it. Now, I stopped short of reading the whole verse in verse 17 intentionally. And I want, because I want to bring to your, to your attention something very important here. Paul's phrase of righteousness of God revealed. So the gospel is not just a display of God's power, but is also, listen church, is also a revelation of His righteousness. As I have attempted over the weeks that I've been dealing with this passage with you in Romans chapter 1 so far, is I've tried to communicate to you that the gospel is, is, is crucial and it is crucial to get the gospel right. And that much of what we hear today, much of what is labeled as gospel, as I've said to you before, really has very little to do with gospel has very little to do with gospel. Because you've got to ask yourself, does what you're hearing accomplish these two things? Does it bring real, I mean real, true, genuine salvation, true heart conversion, faith in Christ, number one, and secondly, does it bring us to the revelation and understanding of the righteousness of God? It might do a lot of things. It might make us feel good. It might make us tap our feet. It might make us want to dance or raise our hands. But does it accomplish those two things? Does it bring salvation? And does it reveal the righteousness of God? If it does not do those two things, or either one of those two things, at any given time, listen, church, I'll be bold enough to say to you, you are not hearing the gospel. You may be hearing a good, feel-good message. You may feel great when you walk out of hearing it, but if it did not accomplish those two things, you did not hear the gospel. That's why it's essential that we get the gospel. And I'm wondering why is there this wholesale abandonment of the gospel? You have been listening to Crosswalk Radio, and that is Pastor Mitch Pridgen, the senior pastor of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach. We are currently in the midst of a teaching series in the book of Romans, and we would encourage you to find out more details about this series and listen to all the sermons in the archives at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. That's crosswalkdaytonabeach.org and click on Crosswalk Radio. Thanks for tuning in today, and please tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully preaching God's Word. Preach the Word in season preach the word out of season preach the word reprove rebuke exhorting men preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience Preach with patience and instruction.